for the first time publicly screened in over 20 years. We present to you Antrim, the deadliest film ever made. Horror movies. They're often the scapegoat in debates about violence, with politicians pointing a finger at the genre and urging for Hollywood to cut back on gore, violence, and stories that take viewers out of their comfort zone. But perhaps horror movies are less the cause of real-world violence and more a means by which we react to the world and filter our anxieties and fears through art or use art as a means of expressing the anger and violence towards things we can't control. Welcome to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. Today I'll be talking about all things horror with Miguel Rodriguez, founder and executive director of Horrible Imaginings Film Festival. I was there when the festival began in San Diego, and last year it moved to the Frida Cinema in Orange County. This year it celebrates its 10th anniversary of bringing a diverse array of horror to the screen. I'm going to take a short break so you can prepare for the terrors that await you. And here's a little more from the film Antrim to put you in the right mood for talking about horror. Since uh, the dawn of cinema, we've been making movies about hell and the devil. And uh, they've been just films. So they've been safe. Antrim is not safe. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Miguel, Horrible Imaginings Film Festival is entering its 10th year. And this year, as usual, you have quite a few selections. In watching some of the films, because I'm one of the judges, so I'm getting to see a lot of the movies that you are running. Full disclosure. Yeah, full disclosure. (laughs) uh, One of the judges. But one of the things I've noticed this year, and it's not something that's particularly new, but I think just seeing a number of films in a row that were similar brought this to my attention. But there are a number of films this year that work without dialogue. And they're not silent films in the sense there's no soundtrack to them at all, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit just about what it is about horror that I think does lend itself to this kind of wordless narrative and makes it very kind of global and international because you can show that anywhere without subtitles. Well, yeah, I think there are a couple of things going on. I'm glad you brought up the international aspect. Uh, I think one of my favorite dialogue-free short films that we have is from Mexico. 
And it does make it universal. And one thing that we're trying to show is that we can come together, different types of people can come together because of fear is so universal, that the emotion is so universal. So there's that aspect. But also there's just something about the leaving out words that kind of makes it a little more nightmarish. It makes it a little more ethereal, a little less real. Dialogue and words tend to ground things in a way that makes them, potentially it makes them familiar and a little less scary. Whereas without the dialogue, it has this effect that maybe you're dreaming, maybe something is askew that is a little hard to describe. And if done correctly, it can be very effective. Um, It could also be a detriment if not done correctly. So uh, I, I will say that, you know, of the hundreds of submissions we got, we also noticed a trend. There were quite a lot that were that had no dialogue, that were just soundscape and image and tried to blend those in a way to give something powerful. Um, and uh, and there were many that we had to decline. So it's not an easy thing to do, uh, even though it seems like it could be. So, yeah, I think that it just it just is a good effect. I like horror as kind of a campfire, a, a communal campfire narrative where, where people get together and share something that might be uncomfortable. And not being able to talk is uncomfortable. Well, it also really lets the music and sound design shine in those films. And those are elements that really are key to horror. Yeah. I mean, I think without if you skimp on the sound design then any sense of tension uh is is gone uh you and yeah bringing that to the forefront is very important um and for the ones that we chose i think that sound is absolutely a key element possibly more so than the images even well, I know you're not showing Mindhunter, which is a series on Netflix, oh. but having just watched that, <laughs> there were a couple of interview scenes which are strictly dialogue, and nothing really horrific happens in the sense of what you see, but the soundscape mm-hmm. that was going on underneath those interviews, it was some kind of hum or drone that just kind of pulled you to the edge of your seat and made you so uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a name for it that I can't think of it, but there's a particular frequency <laughs> that just gets under your skin. And a lot of these types of films, uh, Mindhunter being a very genius element of this, uh, takes advantage of that. Sometimes it's almost imperceptible. Mm-hmm. You just feel it in your chest. Yeah, it's just, there's just something about it that it, it, it appeals to your emotional core in a way that is more effective than someone just talking. Well, and the other thing from the filmmaking point of view, too, is that these filmmakers who are able to do these Mm -hmm. word-free films are smart enough to realize you can shoot a lot cheaper when you're not (laughs) shooting sync sound, and it's a lot cheaper to distribute your films to foreign 
outlets because you don't have to subtitle them. So it seems yeah. like there's a <laughs> smartness behind That's the camera. That's actually a great point that I wasn't thinking of because I just keep thinking of, wow, you know, this really shows that we can avoid exposition altogether. This really shows that we are taking advantage of what is a visual medium and, and, and playing to its strengths rather than just info dumping with a lot of words. Uh, but yeah, that, that's a whole other aspect that I hadn't even thought of. Having been in the student filmmaking realm for quite a while. I, any, anything that can save you money yes, <laughs> it yes. comes immediately to mind. I don't mind. need an SRT for a movie that has no words or uh, subtitles for a movie that has no words. <laughs> now, we talked about these films that are wordless, but there was one film I saw that really jumped out uh, for me that is very scripted, and it reminds me a little bit of uh, one of the animated shorts you had last year, which had this kind of Edgar Allan Poe quality. I think it was Winston Mm -hmm. was the film where it had this driving narrative where the language just kind of pounded out the the beat that was making you tense. But this year, uh, How to Be Alone had a great script of someone who's just trying to spend some time by themselves and letting their imaginations kind of go crazy. It's not so bad. Just follow the steps. Don't slip into old habits. Stick to the plan. The truth is, it doesn't matter. You've always been alone. You always will be. When you get down to it, the only real rule is survival. (laughs) Call something harmless and watch it destroy you. So I'm glad that you compared How to Be Alone to Winston from last year because the words in both of those are not really like dialogue or traditional mm-hmm. they're more poetry yeah so if we talk about the visual medium the, this is picture with words right it, it's really the words are used to describe an emotion or to instill an emotion rather than tell a, a kind of more traditional type story and that one will be interesting that was actually uh written and directed by one of the writers from stranger things mm. the show but you know i like it better even than the show stranger things so uh, i'm excited to show that one well, and both of those use the dialogue, actually, I think, to set the pace. It's mm-hmm. almost like editing. It it sets mm-hmm. a beat and it just drives it in such a way that you feel tense yeah. just listening to the words. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And the acting's great, too, because uh, I think uh, you've got the Micah Monroe from It Follows is the lead in that. And for the most part, she's alone in a room. And, yeah, in a way, that's the opposite effect. The words are what build the tension. (laughs) I love that. It's a great point to bring up after our last conversation. (laughs) (laughs) And this just goes to the diversity of the films you program. Mm. Uh, Your program starts Friday, August 30th, Mm -hmm. and you open with some young filmmakers. Now, this is really exciting to me because seeing the next generation or even the next next generation (laughs) is always great. And... It's amazing to me how kind of eloquent and talented some of these young filmmakers are. How difficult was it to choose some of these? Oh, you know, we got a bunch, but some really stood out. You know, there's one called Butterfly by a young filmmaker named Ella McKeon uh, that I just cannot wait to share with people because not only is it really well made, but it 
it is a film with purpose. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think for a lot of filmmakers, that's the hardest thing. You know, what is the purpose of making this film? We call that Future Fears, that block. And I'm also really excited about it. Uh, and we partnered with a local education group called Creating Creators in Santa Ana. So we were able to get some content from the local high school. So not only are we showcasing young, and we're talking middle school-aged filmmakers, but we're also showcasing from the area uh, some of them. Not all of them, but some of them. So this is something I've actually wanted to do for a long time. And we've always had a youth and student program, but nothing this focused. And this is one of the things I'm most excited about. And I think one of the things that's impressive is that although they may not have the highest production values or the largest budgets, it just proves that if you really have something to say Mm -hmm. and think about how you want to say it, you don't necessarily need those things, that you can overcome those kind of shortcomings to deliver something with a really powerful message. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And and it really and it transcends their age. Mm -hmm. A lot of them Uh, you, you forget you're just watching a story. And the fact that some of these films by the by these young filmmakers deal with important and real issues kind of dovetails into something you've done for a number of years at the festival, which is this sidebar of horror for humanity. And this year you continue that, and you're not just showing films, but you're having a panel with the filmmakers. So, what is the what can people expect from this horror for humanity panel? Well, what I really want to focus on for the conversation is talk about how the genre lens, uh, whether it's horror or suspense or thriller, can be a potent way to express real-world anxieties. What about it is potent? And I feel like now is an interesting time to really delve into that conversation because it's become a little more mainstream that that's possible. Now, I don't think this is a new thing. George Romero was doing it in the in the late 60s and 70s. Uh, arguably, you know, Edgar Ulmer's The Black Cat back in the 30s was a, a, a commentary on World War I. So this has always been there. But lately, you hear a lot of talk, well, now horror can be sociopolitical because of Get Out. You know, this is becoming more mainstream conversation. So I wanted to focus on that specifically, not just to show that it's always been there, but to give some uh, some filmmakers a chance to explain why they thought it was right for what they wanted to do. We have one film called What Daphne Saw, and it kind of tackles two different sociopolitical anxieties, one of which I will say is human trafficking, which is a huge problem right here in Southern California. And this film was partly produced by a group called Not in Our City. So we will have representatives from that group to talk about it. So it's one thing to, to, to make a film to kind of build awareness around this problem, but this is a, like a science fiction thriller. Mr. Sanford. This is Daphne. She'll be your domestic companion for the next five years, as stated in your lease. She can't speak at all, or make sound, or feel. Generally, they commit crimes that would have once resulted in the death penalty or life in prison. Good there's nothing out there. Thinking women are dangerous.
I don't know what it is. He did. But I bet it was pretty serious. Who are you, Daphne? Why build that awareness via this genre? And, uh, and that's something I'm really personally interested in. And, and I think it's worthy of conversation. So that's what that will be about. So you have a special panel for Horror for Humanity, but that doesn't mean that only those films occur in that one panel. You have these kind of films that deal with social issues sprinkled throughout the festival. And one of the things that did seem to come up in a number of films was using horror to deal with specifically gender issues. And that seems to be something that's been popular recently. And I don't know if you see any reason for that particular trend. Well, I mean, I think it's kind of an obvious answer to say, you know, this is kind of a reaction to a post-Me Too world. When I saw, when we were going through a lot of the submissions and I was going through some of the ones I liked, it was just, you know, when we look for films that are made with a purpose, obviously these jump out. And I just think that that whole movement and the action or lack thereof that has happened since then has really galvanized people to want to tell these stories. So there's definitely that trend. And it's not just happening at our kind of art house film festival level. Uh, You have films like Caroline Fargo's Revenge that came out, for example, that's gained a lot of traction that, that fits that mold as well. So I definitely think that there is a movement in the film world for these types of films, particularly not just the gender identity films or or the, the kind of anxieties that come from gender roles, but also how we define gender anyway and and that who is behind the camera and who is being represented. These questions are all being asked. And I think this year there was just a lot of those types of films submitted. So it was not only that we're looking for these types of films, but also just in terms of sheer numbers, there were just a lot to choose from. There were just a lot of them. So, uh, yeah, you know, we have a whole block called Shock to the System, which in a way is kind of a, a, a sociopolitical theme. But um, I'm, I'm thinking it, of it more of the anxiety and the fear is based in something that is not easily identified. So, you know, classically, you could have like Jason Voorhees, that's a, you know, a huge killer with a machete, that that is an easily identifiable fear. It's an easy, easily identifiable threat. But if the threat is domestic violence, and what causes that, that is a little bit more ingrained in our cultural surface. It's a little more hard to harder to peg and uh, and so that's what those are what that's what those films are really focused on and yeah some of them are definitely about you know gender inequality relationship abusive relationships there's one film called lovers that uh, we're world premiering and it's all about not just abusive relationship but more interestingly to me why someone chooses to stay in an abusive relationship. I find that really interesting. I find it really uh, more personal.
That was some of the soundscape from the film Lovers that will be screening at this year's Horrible Imaginings Film Festival. I'll be right back after this final break with more of my interview with Miguel Rodriguez. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Well, we have a mutual friend in Michael McQuiggan who programs Film mm-hmm. Out. And a few years ago, he did his first track of gay horror films just as a separate sidebar. And one of the things I noticed with those selections was this shift in the tone of the horror mm-hmm. from the gay characters being victimized to the gay characters being the ones who are either in control, getting revenge, or appear to be the victim at first and then turn and yeah. become, you know, the either the villain or the one exacting revenge. And it seems like with a lot of your films this year, too, that mm-hmm. there does seem to be that flip where the characters that 10 years ago might have been used as the victim in a horror narrative are now the ones kind of being the catalyst and taking charge. Yeah. um, A couple of years ago, we had a theme that I called dark fantasy or, uh, um, yeah, so there are two sides to what horror could be. One is just showing us something that is scary to us, but the other is kind of living out this this fantasy that you know we wouldn't want to necessarily bring to reality but some of us want to be the person with the machete you know <laughs> and i think that there's a dark fantasy aspect to that that is uncomfortable to talk about and you certainly wouldn't admit that at work per se talking to your boss but uh but if you're going to get something off your chest and and use the cinematic medium to express why you're angry about something or why something causes you anxiety. Maybe you put yourself in the, in the, the, the role of the antagonist. Maybe you put yourself in a more villainous or I guess violent role. Uh, I think that there is something to be said for that. Well, and one of the other things that, comes up to seeing some of these films and seeing some of these trends is that we now seem to have in this post-Me Too movement a shortcut that filmmakers take, which is if you present a straight white male, it's almost like filmmakers feel like they don't have to do any work to make them the bad guy Mm -hmm. or to make them the villain in the piece. And um, it seems like this is a, a new trope that they, not necessarily new, but it seems like it's a trope that is being seized upon right now as kind of this shorthand for like, how do we create something quickly? Right. The cis white male is the is the mustache that gets twirled. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I definitely think that's true. I definitely think that that is something that, that we've seen certainly looking at the submissions as a whole and just looking at films as a whole in general, not just, you know, cis white males, that's certainly true. But also, I've noticed a trend of just the 1%, I guess, the Mm -hmm. bourgeoisie as an easy target, too. And that can be fun. But it's definitely something that is is could be seen as a shorthand. Like, there's a film that's coming out now called Ready or Not, that's definitely about that. And there's a film that we're, we're opening with a film called Satanic Panic, 
it's definitely the 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 rich well-to-do are the are the immediate villains um and it's a lot of fun but it kind of you know one thing i like about that one is it it turns what we know about the satanic panic on its head you know this this uh time in our american history where um people were really scared of these satanic rituals taking kids and sacrificing them and stuff and largely the scapegoats that were supposed to be doing a lot of this were kind of outcasts or teenagers or lower class people or people you know uh people of color like it was a way to really scapegoat the other by largely upper middle class or middle class suburbanites who really were scared of their safe bubble being impinged upon. This turns out, you know, in this movie, you've got the uh, woman who the main character is a pizza delivery person. She's definitely a bit of an outcast. She's someone who maybe would have been, ooh, she might be a Satanist if we were in 1984. But she goes and delivers pizza to this rich house. And and that, lo and behold, they're, they're uh, performing rituals in there. And she has to deal with that. Are you ready to make an investment in your future? Yes! Are you ready to take back what you are owed? Yes! Are you ready to fully commit yourself to Satan? Yes! Who are you? I'm the pizza guy, a girl. Are you by any chance a virgin? That's a very personal question. She's a virgin. Whose power unlocks our true potential? Hail Satan! Do you have any idea what's happening here tonight? Hail Satan! They are summoning Baphomet, the big demon from hell. And when that clock strikes 12, he is going to rip you open. Where's my virgin? I don't know what's happening. My mom and her butt buddies are booty calling Baphomet. And they're not going to stop until you're strapped to a barbed wire altar. That's bonkers. Any idea why the rich stay rich? And you stay screwed? Better health care. They are stronger than us. No virgin, no sacrifice. Let me protect you. Oh, who are you people? Death to the weak, wealth to the strong. This uh, finding this who is the villain right now, what's in the zeitgeist right now is interesting, uh, particularly in a post-Me Too movement and these questions of uh, LGBTQIA rights and um, what's happening at the border. It's, It's creating villains in a in a in a way that could be shorthand. It's like, oh, who's the villain at, at the border? It's the 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 white guy who's the villain with LGBTQ. It's the people with the tiki torches in Charlottesville. Uh, if you look like them, then yeah, the, we don't have to give you a character. You're already someone who is the villain. And filmmakers can do that, but do it with some interest. You mm-hmm. mentioned what Daphne saw as one of the films you're screening, yeah. and the villainous character is a white male, but they give him some shadings that make him much more interesting and less predictable than if they had just done kind of the cardboard cutout stereotype. And I think what what's interesting, too, is when the true nature of what is horrific in that one is revealed, 
the fact that he isn't just your mustache twirler, that he has character and he has some depth to him, is much worse. Mm -hmm. It's much more stomach-churning because they've taken the time to show him at vulnerable moments. And, And I think that what Daphne saw is something that other people could learn from. And I just recently spoke to the organizers from the San Diego Underground Film Festival here in San Diego. And like them, you also have some live performance. (laughs) And it seems like festivals are, you know, always trying to find ways to kind of engage their audience in new ways or to, you know, create something more interactive or immersive. So you have a a ballet component this year. I'm so excited. Uh, You know, it's funny because this is not the first time we've had ballet. Mm -hmm. I like ballet um, and I like it in a horror context because being a ballet dancer means you're doing horrible things to your body uh, and things that seem unnatural. And traditionally, they are unnaturally beautiful. They're, you know, the grace that is on display is something that we look at as divine. Um, But what we have is a troupe doing a zombie ballet. Um, so it's taking something unnatural to present something darkly unnatural, you know, with a little tongue in cheek. But um, but I'm really excited. Uh, Lee Pertill Ballet Company is the ballet company that is going to be performing. We're going to have three different performances on Friday, the 30th. Um, and And, you know, it's just another way to show how this genre is something that I think we all, it's like Halloween, you know, we all get excited about Halloween and getting a little bit scared and showing dark things. And, uh, and this is just another way to just have that. Um, we are, part of our mission is to, to show horror in a variety of art. And, uh, and this is trying to adhere to that mission. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about Horrible Imaginings. Thank you for inviting me on. It's always a pleasure. That was Miguel Rodriguez of Horrible Imaginings Film Festival. The festival celebrates its 10th anniversary over Labor Day weekend at the Frida Cinema. Cinema Junkie comes out every other Friday. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places.